Good morning, everybody. It is Tuesday, March 30th. I want to talk this morning about judges, the law, and courts dealing with voting rights. This morning, President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris have nominated 11 uh, judges to openings on federal courts. Federal courts are uh, district courts that oversee clusters of states. I think there's nine districts in this country. Um, there are appeals courts where uh, district court cases can be appealed if people don't like the rulings or disagree with them in the district court level. And then there is the Supreme Court. These, uh, these three clusters of courts, district appeals, and then the U.S. Supreme Court are all federal positions. And what, that, what that means is if you have a, an argument about whether a law is constitutional under the U.S. Constitution, you bring it into the federal courts. If you have an argument about whether a state law um, is uh, an issue with the U.S. Constitution, you bring it into the federal court. If you have an issue with a federal law and whether it lines up with the U.S. Constitution, you bring it into a federal court. If you have an issue with a state law that you think violates the state constitution for the state you're in, then you bring it into state courts. Federal courts are usually the, the more powerful, impactful courts because they deal with national law. Um, and the most significant uh, civil rights cases over time end up in federal courts. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris nominate 11 judges to openings today. Those nominations now go to the U.S. Senate, which has to approve them. Um, and life, uh, federal court positions, federal judicial positions, are lifetime appointments, which means when the uh, judge is approved, they're lifetime appointments. I don't think that's a good idea. Um, I think that we should have maybe 10 year, 10 years of an appointment and then some kind of reassessment or or that's it, 10 years. But um, that's what the law is. And it's important for a presidential administration to, to fill these vacancies. Donald Trump filled so many that he has, uh, that over a quarter of all the federal judges now in uh, his four years are Trump-appointed federal judges, including, is it uh, three? On the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett on the Supreme Court. This this is not to start us off on a discouraged place. I'm excited about these 11 judges. Um, it is to start us off with the reality that there's a, a large mountain to climb on kind of re-staffing the, the uh, federal courts. And there is, uh, I think, about 80 vacancies that Joe Biden faces now that uh that he's going to attempt to fill. I will end this this episode by coming back to those judges. Judges are so important when it comes to voting laws because they interpret them. They interpret the laws and they interpret the constitutions, both state and US constitutions. And it is uh John Roberts who has been the most influential of all judges in the last two decades in this country since being appointed Supreme Court Chief Justice in 2005. He's been the most important and he has had a career-long um, opposition to
the Voting Rights Act and to voting rights laws generally. Um, when Roberts and the court in 2013 struck down crucial portions of the Voting Rights Act um, in the Shelby County v. Holder decision, Roberts in his majority decision said that the law needed to be updated uh, because the South has changed, he said, and the law should be updated to meet current conditions. Those current conditions are what we're seeing right now. And they are current conditions that were enacted immediately after that Supreme Court decision. Um, literally, literally later that day in the Supreme Court decision in 2013, Texas implemented a law that it had passed but had been blocked by the Department of Justice, the Obama administration's Department of Justice, that uh, implemented voter ID laws that still are some of the most strictest in the country. And North Carolina, the following day, uh, pushed, put into place its voter ID laws that had also been blocked by the Department of Justice under the Voting Rights Act. So the current conditions were, in 2013, not good, but Roberts still defended the South. And the current conditions today are obviously horrible. Um, and two of the key states that were limited under the Voting Rights Act before the Shelby County decision, the two states of Georgia and Arizona, they're two of the several that were limited, um, have been at the center of our focus this, this spring, trying to block really bad laws in Georgia and some now really bad bills in Arizona. I want to talk a little bit about Arizona today. So the US, the Arizona, or there's two laws in Arizona that are currently under consideration by the U.S. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court considered oral arguments on the laws in early March, and the two laws uh, say that um, one, voters can vote out of precincts. Um, no, I'm sorry. It said that any vote cast out of precinct, out of your voting precinct, would be discarded instead of counted. And second, that voters are not legally able to collect ballots and return them um, from people outside of their immediate family. This is called ballot collection, or in the negative phrasing of it, ballot, ballot harvesting. The Supreme Court is considering whether both of those laws violate the Federal Voting Rights Act or not. Does the Voting Rights Act protect the ability of a person to vote if they happen to vote outside their precinct? Does it count their vote still? And second, does it allow the Voting Rights Act, in order to try to help everybody vote, allow people to return their ballots through a person who is a friend of their family or a community leader? The Supreme Court has signaled in their oral arguments consideration that it's likely to to uphold both of these ballot restrictions, um, which would further undercut the Voting Rights Act. But we don't know for sure. We'll see. Um, but it is a signal that it's likely to to uphold them. Um, well, right now um, in Iowa, in Georgia, where two voting rights restrictive laws have been passed 
and signed by the Republican governors, passed by Republican legislatures and signed by Republican governors, um, they are being sued. They are being sued by local organizations, um, and they uh, have the premier national legal counsel coming out of the Perkins Coie office in Washington, D.C., headed by Mark Elias. Mark Elias runs a blog called democracydocket.com that you'd be welcome to take a, take a read of to keep track on his actions and the work against these, these, these state laws that have been passed. These uh, arguments are that the Iowa law, which cuts back the numbers of the number of early voting days, cuts back the window of uh, absentee ballot requests and amount of time to return them, cuts back which uh, which voters can vote no excuse absentee, and the Georgia laws, which um, implements further voter ID for absentee bills for absentee votes, um, cuts back where the drop boxes are located in. Um, for people to return their ballots and also criminalizes the providing of water or food to anybody in a voting line, a, an act that is just beyond comprehension, really, that you would criminalize this, um, uh, that these are being sued by locals and by Mark Elias. These will end up in federal courts. Um, because the argument is that they violate the Federal Voting Rights Act and also the guarantees of equal protection um, that are present in the 14th Amendment. Um, the arguments are the federal constitutional arguments, and so they'll end up in those courts. They'll probably make their way to the Supreme Court. People uh, often ask me, what won't, even if we get new laws passed or block these bad bills, um, if we block the bad state bills or pass HR1 and S1 at the federal level, won't the U.S. Supreme Court just overturn it? Um, and my take on the Supreme Court is that uh, you don't know until the Supreme Court rules that all you can do is make is do the best you, we can to advance a just and inclusive democracy, and then uh, and that's our lane, that's our work, and then uh, you know leave it to the court system to do whatever it's going to do. I do know that Roberts, in his majority decision at Shelby, said that it was the job of legislatures, in that case Congress, to to update and to make voting laws applicable to the current conditions. Um, he has deferred in other court decisions to state legislatures. The whole Supreme Court has. They deferred to state legislatures in a number of instances in 2020. So it is it is a it would be consistent that if the Congress passed H.R. 1 and S. 1, that the U.S. Supreme Court, as currently constituted, would defer to them, would say, you passed the law, you are the law-bearing wing of the federal government, so we're going to follow your lead. So I don't know what will happen um, at, the, uh, at the Supreme Court level. I'm not uh, overly optimistic, but I also believe that... that uh, our work is to back block, is to do all we can. Our advocacy work is to do all we can to block bad bills and to support good bills. And that our voter field work work is to do all we can to elect people 
who will provide a just and inclusive democracy, who will work towards that. Um, so right now in Arizona, there are uh, a couple legislative bills that are in the system and that the Republican legislature is considering passing. One would make it uh, the case that you have to postmark your no excuse absentee ballot uh, by the Thursday before the Tuesday election day, that it has to be postmarked by then in order to be counted. Another one would would say that if you are out of state for any length, certain length of time that you need to switch your voter registration out of state, this would impact college students, military, um, overseas workers, um, people who get transferred for jobs for periods of time. Um, they want to enact that. And then a third possible bill would remove people in what's called a voting purge, would remove people from a permanent early voting list. Um, and which that permanent was called Pebble permanent early voting list is the list of people who get mailed absentee ballots every election. And it's about 80% of Arizonans, 80% of Arizona voters. Um, this third bill would, would uh, remove names from Pebble if someone doesn't vote in two consecutive federal elections. Uh, there's just no reason we should be taking people's names off of voting lists just because they don't vote for a couple of elections. There are all kinds of reasons why people don't vote. Um, and so the notion that they should be tossed off of a voting list and thus have to re-register just because they uh, did not participate for a couple of elections is really, really exclusionary. And it overly targets people who are not what are called quote unquote regular voters. And those non-regular voters are more, are younger. They tend to be people who move, um, lower income. Uh, these are voters who are tend to very much vote democratic. So damaging the voter list for Pebble would, uh, would hurt democratic voters. So all three of these, um, considerations, the, the the forcing of votes to be cast several days postmark before the election, the um, the changing of Pebble, um, and I'm not sure if I mentioned the third one in, in uh, Arizona, which is the, a bill that would, oh yes, I did, about the out-of-stateness, the out-of-state uh, identities. All, all of these, particularly because college students are heavy in that third group, uh, would hurt Democratic voters. We are working now to block these. We had significant success in limiting the damage of the Georgia law. We are now focused on Arizona. We started on Sunday to focus on Arizona. We are calling four days a week to voters in Arizona to ask them to contact their state legislators to express that we ask the voters to express their opposition to these bills. And then two days a week, we're working on HR1 and S1 uh, calls where we're calling voters in key states and asking them to contact their U.S. senators uh, to support S1. We will significantly increase our S1 calling when the Arizona legislature finishes. 
Uh, but we, we still have several weeks to go there. All of this contributes to an environment where voters are knowledgeable about, engaged around, and uh, pursuing um, a more just and inclusive democracy. So we, we don't do this just to win the outcome. We also do it to just engage voters because that's a good thing. That's a good ethical posture for a democracy. When you elect good quality people, they then make good quality decisions. Not always. I certainly don't always make the best possible choice. Um, but I like to, be I like to believe that, that there's an ethical commitment behind the work we do at Common Power and in my life. And so it leads to a probability of good choices, um, a, a high probability of that. And we see that in the judges that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are nominating to the U.S. Senate. They nominated them today, as I said, 11 new judges. And one of the defining characteristics of Donald Trump's nominees which was the primary thing that the U.S. Senate did during his term in office and with Mitch McConnell in the majority leadership position. One of the primary characteristics was that he nominated and the, the uh, U.S. Senate approved federal judges who were white men. Uh, now, uh, any judge should be qualified if you're going to appoint them regardless of their their gender or racial identities. Um, that's the most important consideration is the qualifications. But not long after that is who are these people and what are the life experiences um, that they bring to their decisions. Sonia Sotomayor, one of my, uh, one of the inspiring heroes that I look to in our country, um, has talked about the importance of empathy as a judicial characteristic to care about various people and to be able to understand who they are and what they've gone through and that judges who have this can be more inclusive and more uh, just in their decision making. That all ties to the life experiences, the professional experiences that judges have. So 11 judges today that Biden and Harris nominated. I just want to tell you a couple characteristics about them. First of all, it includes three African-American women chosen for circuit court vacancies. Biden has committed to naming an African-American woman to the U.S. Supreme Court when a opening occurs. These three candidates, these three nominees to circuit court positions would be potential candidates for that. These 11 judges include the first Muslim American federal judge in U.S. history. The first, let me just say that again the first Muslim American federal judge in U.S. history. These 11 judges include the first Asian American Pacific Islander woman to ever serve on the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. 
the Washington, D.C. U.S. District Court, which is the most important district court in the country. It's where John Roberts came from uh, when he was elevated to the Supreme Court. It's where Merrick Garland just came from. When he was nominated to the court, didn't get the, uh, the consideration by the Senate, and then is now the Attorney General of the country. And these 11 judges also include the first woman of color to ever serve as a federal judge for the District of Maryland, which is one of the nine districts that oversee federal laws in this country. These are the 11 judges that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris nominated today. They go to the U.S. Senate and the, the, uh, the Senate will take up their consideration and will vote on them. There's a process there. Uh, Mitch McConnell kept this process going for Donald Trump all the way through, nonstop. And it is important that the Democrats now put their stamp on judges significantly. Um, this is essential for our democracy. There was a, I want to finish with, there's a story, a story about a judge um, in the district that included the Deep South in the 1950s. Um, this judge was went to law school with George Wallace in Al, at the University of Alabama in the 1940s and then became named by Dwight Eisenhower, um, the youngest federal judge in the country in the 1950s. His name was Frank Minnis Johnson. And Johnson had, had grown up in a, a, a county in northern Alabama that actually did not secede that rejected secession during the Civil War. There were these kind of rural counties um, that had huge independent streaks, and he came came from a county that was in one of these. Johnson was appointed, I think, in 1953 to the to the uh, U.S. District Court, and in 1955, uh, Johnson is crucial to a court decision that brings about a victory for the Montgomery bus boycott, uh, civil rights activists. And in 1965, 10 years later, Johnson is crucial to a court, a, a judicial decision that provides federal protection to the Selma to Montgomery marchers. Johnson was a liberal judge, or I should say a small D democratic judge in the midst of the most conservative <coughs> federal court district in the country. Johnson faced death threats constantly throughout his life uh, because of this. Today in Alabama, in Montgomery, Alabama, the courthouse there is named after Frank Minnis Johnson. Um, he, he did the right set of things, and he has been recognized by history as fighting for justice. Federal judges make a difference. They rule on court laws, on, I mean, on, on laws about the constitutionality of them. And they don't always do what you expect from them. 
our work is to put before them laws that are just and inclusive and to block those that are not. We're doing our work in Arizona and we're fighting nationally right now. Let us be strong. Let us be determined. Let us be educated. Let us focus on what we can do. What we can do. 11 judges today. That's what we can get done in electing good people and then giving them laws that they can make fair decisions on.